Well, as you see on the screen, we're in Luke chapter 18 this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are in a series of messages from the Gospel of Luke. In that section of his Gospel that we refer to as the travel narratives, began in Luke 9, verse 51, where it says that Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And even though there are 24 chapters in Luke, it's in chapter 9 that he sets his face to go to Jerusalem for the final time. He's on his way to the cross, going to die for you and me. And so I just think it's interesting to notice and to examine the things Jesus chose to teach the twelve and those others that got to share in the teaching, the things he thought were essential for them and that would help them after he left, after he ascended into heaven. Final words, closing words, are oftentimes very special words, very important words. And these are things Jesus taught the twelve in order to carry on the work once he was gone, back to heaven. So in Luke chapter 18 this morning, we commonly call this the story of the rich young ruler. You won't see the word young, except in the, the title maybe, a topical heading or something. The only one of the, the three synoptic gospels that call him young, I think, is Matthew. He says that he was a young man. But we call this the story of the rich young ruler. So beginning in verse 18 of chapter 18. A certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, then, then who can be saved? But he said, the things impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Warren Wearsby made a statement about this, this account one time. I'm not sure I totally agree with it. He said, of all the people that ever came to the feet of Jesus, this man's the only one who went away worse than he came. But when I stop and think about all the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, that came to Jesus in order to trap him and do other things, I'm not so sure that that's totally true. I think there were several people that would come to Jesus but go away worse than what they came. Now, the Gospel of Mark says that this young man was in a hurry and that he ran up to Jesus and knelt down before him. 
So apparently he had been moved by something that Jesus had said or that he had done. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now listen, folks, that's the most important question that anyone can ever ask. That is a vital question, and it's vital to have that question answered correctly. So he came to Jesus, which is great, because Jesus is the one that's going to have the correct answer to that vital question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now he calls him teacher, but, but notice the contrast here. The contrast between Jesus and this young ruler. One of them's the rich young ruler, the other's our Lord. The rich young ruler had a lot in this world, but nothing in eternity. Jesus had everything in eternity, but nothing in this world. The rich young ruler had earthly position. Jesus had no earthly position, although he was equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He left his throne of glory to come here to have no position at all. So there's quite a contrast between the two. And there's a lot of things right about this story. For instance, the young man came at the right time. There is no better time for people to come to Jesus than when they're young. Right? That's the best time. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. The best time to give your life to Christ is when you're young. And that's why we strive to connect with the next generation. That's why it is absolutely vital, vital that we teach young people the Bible, that we teach them about God, that we teach them about Jesus, who he is, what he did. It's absolutely vital we teach about how God says we're to live our life. It's absolutely vital we teach young people that there's not just the physical, there's also the spiritual, and that we're to live our lives in a way to keep our spirits alive unto God. It's absolutely vital that we teach them what the Bible says about how to behave and about our origins and about our true identity and how God created us, things of that nature. We must teach them the Scriptures. And the best time to give your life to Christ is when you're young. So this young man came at the right time. He came to the right person. He came to Jesus Christ. He's the Savior, and he wants to know how to be saved, all right? He asked the right question, a question about the eternal destiny of his soul. Now, that question can be asked in a number of ways. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You might ask the question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to become a Christian? What must I do to go to heaven? What must I do to have my sins forgiven? Okay, all the same question, just ask in different ways. So he asked the right question, and he received the right answer. Jesus told him how to go to heaven. So notice, all these things are right. He came at the right time, he came to the right person, he asked the right question, he got the right answer, and then tragedy of all tragedies, he did the wrong thing. After all that's right, he did the wrong thing. The worst thing he could do, he turned away from Jesus. Now, notice that 
Let's look at it a little more closely. Luke says a certain ruler in verse 18. The word ruler, Greek word archon, it means a first one. It means a person of prominence. The word was used to describe the ruler of a synagogue or an outstanding Pharisee. It was also the word used to designate a member of the Sanhedrin or a great man or a prince. And so this young man, a ruler, is someone of importance, which makes his actions all the more remarkable. Because as Mark's account says, he ran up to Jesus. He fell on his knees. He knelt before Jesus. As young as he was, as rich as he was, as influential as he was, he still sensed a need in his life, and he had the good sense to come to Jesus. He realized there's some things that money can't buy. As someone has said, money can buy a bed, but it can't buy sleep. Money can buy food, but it can't buy an appetite. Money can buy a house, but it can't buy a home. Money can buy medicine, but it can't buy health. Money can buy fine jewelry and other fine things, but it cannot buy love. Money can buy toys, but it can't buy the cure for the emptiness that comes after they're gone. And most important of all, money can't buy eternal life. So this young man was well aware of the fact that he had bought everything that he could buy. He had done everything that he could do in life, and yet something is still missing. So he didn't come to Jesus seeking material benefit, as so many others do. He came wanting to know what to do to inherit eternal life. He'd already inherited the wealth, the position, the influence, all the things people covet in this world. But he hadn't inherited eternal life. So as rich as he was, he was poor. And as great as he was, he was lost. So he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He admitted by his question he didn't know the answer to life's most important question. Do you? Do you know the answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you know how to be saved? Do you know how to go to heaven? With all he had going for him, his view of spiritual things was superficial. He obviously had a shallow view of salvation because he thought there was something that he could do to earn eternal life or to merit eternal life. What does our world say? What does our culture say in answer to that question? <laughs> They say, do anything you want. Everybody's going to end up being saved in the end anyway. That's universalism. And that is a lie. That's false. The scriptures definitely do not teach that. You cannot do anything you want. <laughs> That's true in other areas as well. You can't do anything you want. How many of you are ticklish? Let me see your hands. Just, okay. I don't know. <laughs> don't tell me where you're ticklish at. But if you're ticklish right now, tickle yourself in the area that you're ticklish. Did it tickle you? No. You can't tickle yourself. 
Did you know that? That's one thing you can't do. You can't tickle yourself. <laughs> There's other things. I don't know why I saw this, but it, it, I just thought it was funny. You can't sneeze with your eyes open. Can you? You have. Okay. Oh, okay, going down the road driving. Okay, maybe that one's not true. That's one thing they say. Okay, you can't slam a revolving door. Okay, and according to one study, you can't move your leg in a clockwise, in a clockwise position in a circle and simultaneously draw the number six. Now, don't try to do that right now. You'll fall out of your seat, Okay. But try to move your leg in a clockwise position and draw the number six and your leg automatically wants to go the other way. It's just strange. Some of you are going to be back there trying it, all right? Yeah. So this rich young ruler, okay, uh, he thought there was something that he could do to get eternal life. And he uses the word inherit. What must I do to inherit? Apparently that's how he got rich. But ironically, an inheritance is something we receive based on the gift of another. You don't do anything to inherit something. But in verse 19, Jesus asks a question. This young ruler had said, good teacher, a title of respect. Like he's saying, you're the one who's got the answer to my question. You know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And it makes me wonder if he's looking at this rich young ruler and saying, why are you calling me good? Are you saying I'm God? Because he's the only one that's good. And that rich young man had no idea that he was standing face to face with God, God in the flesh. And so Jesus answered him, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he says, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus didn't argue with him. <laughs> he didn't say, now nah, wait a minute, what about that time? He didn't do that. He didn't tell him, well, no, you haven't kept all of them. But he was about to show him that in fact he had broken the very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Because this young man had another God. More important to him than the one true God in heaven. And Jesus points it out by saying, there's one thing that you still lack. Go sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now what happened next I think is predictable. Because we see the sorrow of this young man. He was shaken to the core of his being. He became very sad because he had great wealth. Mark says he was disheartened by the saying. His face fell. He went away sorrowful because of his great possessions. It was written all over his face. The surprise probably at Jesus' answer. The struggle within him. The sorrow. For a brief moment. I think he felt the pull of Christ's glorious offer. And for a brief moment, he knew it was the right thing to do. And his heart was pounding with excitement because life with Jesus, that would be an incredible adventure. But then he thought of his fields, 
He thought of his farms and his finances, and his face fell. It wouldn't work. He didn't want to part with everything he had accumulated and saved. All the stuff he had enjoyed, he couldn't do it. He should do it, but he wouldn't. And so he went away sorrowful. And maybe you're wondering, okay, well, preacher, does this mean that we have to sell everything we have and give it to the poor in order to be saved? No, it doesn't mean that. You see, the great physician doesn't treat every disease with the same prescription. Because your problem may not be the same problem he had. His wealth was his God. It was more important to him than a relationship with Jesus. And that may not be the, the, the issue with you. And so he doesn't tell every single person to give up everything and give it to the poor. We are to be willing to surrender everything and follow Jesus. But this young man had another God. He was actually a poor man. He went back to a palace of abundance surrounded by riches and every luxury you could have back then, but he'd be forever haunted by everything he'd just thrown away. He had a full safe, but he had an empty soul. So Jesus then turns this into a teachable moment. He turns around and says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those that are rich to enter the kingdom of God. One commentator said this, and I quote, Two worlds exist, this one and the one to come. Two systems exist, this world system with its promises, prospects, pleasures, possessions, perspectives, and power. And that other world system with its totally different set of values. Wealth tends to ally itself to this world, which is why materialism is such a deadly enemy of the kingdom of God. Ultimately, God brings people to Calvary where we learn what this world thinks of Christ and what God thinks of this world. Those who have riches have a greater stake in this world than to those who don't. That's why it's harder for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Riches tend to blind one's eyes to ultimate eternal, and spiritual realities by anchoring us to the wrong world. And so Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed at his words. I think a better translation would be they were stunned. Why? Because most Jews believe that the possession of great wealth was evidence. It was proof that God had blessed that person. So if a person has great wealth, if a person has been blessed of God that way, and it's difficult for them or impossible to enter the kingdom, no wonder they ask, then who can be saved? If a God-blessed person can't be saved, who can be? Many people still believe that today, in spite of the message of Job and the example of Christ and the teaching of the New Testament. Dr. John Piper said, prosperity cannot be a proof of God's favor since it's what the devil promises to those who worship him. Remember the temptations in the wilderness? So Jesus used this rich young man as an object lesson. And he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I know that there are scholars that, that believe that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the, 
the eye of the needle or the needle gate. So, and a camel with a load would have to, have to get down basically and call, uh, crawl through it, being very difficult. To my knowledge, such a gate has never been found. I don't know if that's the point there. I think Jesus is describing an impossibility. A camel can't go through the eye of a needle, can it? And a rich person can't save themselves, can he? They can't buy their way into heaven. And the disciples asked, then who can be saved if a rich person can't with God's blessing? That's the whole point. No one can save themselves. You can't. That's why you need Jesus. And so Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And so the disciples began to think about everything they'd left to follow Jesus. Peter, James, and John, they'd left a very prosperous fishing business. Matthew, Levi, he had left the IRS. <laughs> and Peter spoke up, well, what about us? We left everything to follow you, probably thinking, what are we going to get out of this? And Jesus answered, no one, who is, no one has left anything who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, in this life, and in the age to come, eternal life. A hundredfold in this life. That's a 10,000% return. Pretty good. Mark Batterson, who preaches at the National Community Church in Washington, D.C., Capital Community, National, National Capital Church, whichever it is. He's written several books, but Mark Batterson said, the rich young ruler had everything we think we want. He was rich, he was young, and he was in a position of power. What more could he possibly want? What could he possibly be missing? And why was he so miserable? The answer is easy. He was following the rules but he wasn't following Jesus. And I think that is true of far too many people in far too many churches. End of quote. Following the rules instead of following Jesus. What about you? What are you missing in your life today? Is there anything more important to you than Jesus? This young man came to Jesus and he asked the right question. He asked the right person, and he got the right answer. And by the way, the answer that Jesus gave him, you know the commandments, the, the Ten Commandments. Would Jesus give a person the same answer today to that question? No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't tell us to obey the law of Moses and follow the Ten Commandments. Because if Jesus nailed that to the cross, read the second chapter of Colossians. What would Jesus tell us today to do to be saved? He'd tell us to believe in him as the son of the living God. Before Jesus ascended back into heaven, he gave his disciples a commission to go into all the world and to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them everything else that Jesus had taught those twelve. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I've handed out that paper to you before. You see it on a slide on the screen. 
This is the position of New Hope Christian Church on what we, we must do in order to be saved. We've got to hear the message. We've got to hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Jesus told the twelve, you go tell the world about me. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Go tell the world about me. They've got to hear the message. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Then a person has a choice. Am I going to believe this good news about Jesus, that his blood can actually save me from my sin, that Jesus can actually give me eternal life? Am I going to believe that, or am I going to reject it? In order to be saved, you have to believe it. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Acts 16, 31 where Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Then, there needs to be repentance. When you believe that Jesus died to save you, that your sins, your wrongdoings, caused him an absolutely sinless, perfect man to die, there should be, as it says, also in 2 Corinthians, but I've got the Acts 2.38 passage there. There should be a godly sorrow that works repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. You Sin separates you from God. You decide you want to come back to God and be right with Him. You've got to turn around. Repentance is a turnaround point. Acts 2.38, when the people on the day of Pentecost asked Peter, what must they do? He said, repent. And so repentance is essential. Confession is essential. That's where you say with your mouth what you believe about Jesus. You confess, just like Peter did, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Romans 10, 9 and 10 passage says that with your mouth you confess, resulting in salvation. Then you're ready to be baptized. Baptism is immersion in water. For the first 1,300 years of church history, immersion was the only form of baptism that was recognized in the church. Sprinkling and the pouring of water are man's inventions. The Greek word bopt, B-A-P-T, okay, that's how we would spell it, literally means to immerse, submerge, to go under, to overwhelm. The reason we baptize by immersion is because that's what they did in the scriptures. We do what they did. Anything magic in that water? No. But when you submit to the command of Jesus to be baptized, that's when God does his work of cleansing you from your sin and placing within you the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is what Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent. And let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then, live the life. Be faithful. Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Now, why do we believe those things? Because that's what they did. In the pages of the New Testament, this is what people did in order to be saved. Study the book of Acts, the only historical book in the New Testament, and that's what they did. They heard the message, they believed it, 
They repented, they confessed, they were immersed, and then they lived the life. That's why we do what we do. Have you done that? That's how you answer the question, what must I do to, an, to inherit eternal life? Have you done that? If you haven't, I would encourage you to. That's what they did. Have you?